Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Medical marijuana may be legal in Pennsylvania soon. A years-long legislative battle fought mostly by the parents of children who suffer from seizure disorders or other conditions or diseases came to a head last week when a bill was approved by the State House of Representatives and sent to the Senate for concurrence. If the Senate agrees to amendments added by the House, Governor Tom Wolf has indicated he will sign it. On today's program, we take a look at the law and how it will be used. Joining us is Mark Walters, who is a York Daily Record reporter. He's covered the issue for several years now. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. Also joining us is Lolly Bench Myers, whose daughter may benefit from the use of medical marijuana. Ms. Bench Myers, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Nice to be here. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. There is a lot, there is much more to this bill than I think a lot of people realized. And Mark Walters, we're going to be talking about that in just a moment. But first, I want to turn to uh, Lolly Bench Myers, whose daughter, Anna, suffers from uh, seizure disorders. Actually, tell us about that, Anna, what and what she's been diagnosed with? Uh, Anna has been diagnosed. Um, her, her first diagnosis was autism. Um, and then shortly after that, she was diagnosed with mesial temporal sclerosis, which um, actually causes autism. So, you know, it's one of those chicken before the egg arguments. We don't know which one came first, but um, it also causes intractable epilepsy, cognitive delays, um, and, you know, sleep issues, anxiety issues, um, things of that nature. So um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a really hard diagnosis. It's complicated and it's messy and it, and it, and it just stinks to see your child um, suffer with it. How old is she? She's eight years old. So the seizures that uh, she has had, uh, I assume, since she was born, what kind of describe, as you say, it's very messy. How kind of describe uh, what she's dealt with? Well, she actually didn't have seizures um, that we could see until somewhere around um, age, you know, three and a half, four, we started to notice these, um, you know, very strange movements, and we didn't know what they were initially, um, because, you know, unless you really are familiar with epilepsy um, and the the different um, diagnoses that cause epilepsy, you may not realize that there are so many different seizure types. And in my mind, I just always thought it was, you know, grand mal seizures. Um, And that's not what she was having. She was having head drop seizures. And and that's where, you know, basically your body sort of jackknifes. Your head comes down very quickly. um, And if, you know, there's an object in front of you, your head is probably going to hit that object, you know. So, um, so you know, dealing with these just involved a lot of, um, you know, child proofing and things. A lot of you know holding and you know if you're if you're sitting at the table having dinner, um, you know, odds are she's going to wind up slamming her head into her dinner at some point. So of course you you know kind of have to hold her or feed her or whatever. You know, just just really you know gent gently take care of her to make sure that she doesn't suffer, you know, head injuries as a result of those seizures. Uh, but then, you know, the longer the seizures went uncontrolled, the more seizure types she developed. So, you know, then we were dealing at some points, at her worst, we were dealing with um, probably about 150 seizures a day um, of, of different varieties. You had your, you know, grand mal seizures, which she had just started having um, uh, probably 
two years into the um, the intractable epilepsy journey, um, and then you know lots of head drop seizures, and um, uh, I think that was that was her main main seizure types, definitely. How was she being treated? How was she being treated? Um, with anticonvulsants um, and diets, of course. You know, I think every seizure kiddo at some point tries the ketogenic diet, which is nicknamed the starvation diet. You actually have to be hospitalized to be put on this diet. Um, and uh, it's high fat. Um, her, her diet consisted primarily of mayonnaise, olive oil, and um, and a little bit of protein. Um, that was about it. So we tried that, um, failed it miserably. Her seizures actually increased during the time she was on that diet. So, you know, we had sort of exhausted all of the traditional therapies. And, um, and we had had several consultations for surgery. And um, she just wasn't really a very good seizure candidate at that point. So it was definitely trying time to go time to think outside the box. How did you learn about uh, marijuana? Now, is it oil that uh, she'll be able to uh, take advantage of? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, we had been told by several friends to, to look into it, you know, and, um, and done some research, you know, during during dark times where you're just spending so many sleepless nights worrying about your child, you inevitably are going to start Googling, um, you know, different things. And so, of course, you do your own research on medical cannabis. And there wasn't a whole lot out there um, at the time we started researching it. This was several years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, the Sanjay Gupta documentary Weed aired. Um, I believe it was in August of 2013, and after that, it was de- that was definitely a light bulb moment for a lot of parents, where we, you know, realized that that was definitely something that we needed to look into immediately. Is she a good candidate for it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that you were thrilled with uh, the House vote last week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was. Uh, it still feels surreal. You know, it's just really this, I don't know, it, I, I'm i not quite relieved completely because there's so much uncertainty facing us yet. I think once the governor has this bill on his desk and he's ready to sign it, I will finally breathe a sigh of relief and, and you know, pop the cork on the champagne. I would like to hear about Anna uh, after it is legal and she is able to, uh, uh, to use uh, the medical marijuana oil and uh, see what kind of impact it does have. I uh, want to turn to Mark Walters now. Uh, Mark, as uh, Lolly just mentioned, there's still, uh, even as much as of a celebration there was by those who have supported this for a long time, uh, there still is a ways to go, right? Where, where do we stand right now? The bill is back in the Senate, and they're in session today, so they can consider it uh, right away. Um, And they can do one of two things, that being concur and send it to Governor Wolf's desk, which would happen immediately, or they could change anything. Um, I'm told if they change so much as a comma, it has to go back to the House. So at one time, there were more than 200 amendments to this bill. How many are there now? And are there amendments that the Senate may have an issue with? It's my understanding, based on watching the the discussions and and deliberations last week, that there were 34 proposed on, I believe that was just on Tuesday. The bill passed Wednesday. Of those 34, I believe only eight of them were actually voted 
yes on. Um, there were several on Monday. <laughs> not sure exactly how many, but what happened with that was several, many were withdrawn throughout the process based on others either uh, going up or down with votes. What are some of those amendments? And again, are, are there any that uh, there may be some issues with in the Senate? Two things, uh, well, three, if you count them by item, that I thought was were interesting coming out of the House were that two conditions were added, which were um, sickle cell anemia and autism were added as treatable conditions. And the other thing that flat out surprised me coming out of the House was that there was no limit on the amount of tetrahydrocannabinol, otherwise known as THC, that could be in uh, medical cannabis under this program. Um, the, the other thing that, that I think is most noteworthy, when this bill came out of the Senate back in May, it allowed for 65 growers, 65 processors, and 130 dispensaries, and each one of those would have required a $50,000 uh, license with a $5,000 renewal every year. Um, when it came out of the House last week, it allowed for 25 grower slash processors, 50 dispensaries, each of which could have up to three locations, um, $10,000 just to apply to register to be a grower processor, $200,000 um, for the license, and a grower processor, I believe, would have to have uh, it's something like $2 million, half a million of which would have to be uh, backed by a financial institution. So I didn't see that as the House trying to make it more difficult. I think they were just trying to make it more legitimate. I mean, if someone's going to do this, I think they want it to be done by someone who has the ability to do it the right way. And I think in order to do it the right way, you have to have some some serious capital behind you. And just to point out, you mentioned that autism was added as one of those conditions. Pennsylvania would be the first state in the country that would allow uh, medical marijuana uh, to treat uh, autism. Now, Pennsylvania, if Governor Wolf does sign this into law, if the Senate uh, passes it, governor signs it, Pennsylvania would be the 24th state in the country that allows this. Uh, But that money, where would that money go that, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, that would have to be registered to growers, to processors, and all that? Where, where would the money go? Interesting uh, question. It would basically, a fund would be set up. Um, it would cost, I'm looking through the, the, the fiscal note right now, the, the House, what came through the House estimates $7 million dollars uh, to be received in the medical marijuana program fund, um, five and a quarter million for the grower processors, 50 dispensers, dispensaries at one and a little less than two million. Um, the House estimated a uh, fiscal impact of significantly less than what the Senate estimated. The Senate estimated back in May 20 to $40 million in, in revenue. The, the, the House had it between 12 and, and 15. So really it would go through, I mean, the Department of Health would be regulating this. They would set up a board that would be very similar to the state's liquor control board, and that would require, I would imagine, some new employees. It would require um, a very, very sophisticated and technologically advanced 
tracking system that would allow everyone at the health department to keep track of everyone legally doing business, receiving um, the, the drug. And Scott, I actually checked last week with the medical, or sorry, the Marijuana Policy Project, and they said that several other states do allow for um, autism. Oh, really? Oh, okay, because it has been reported that Pennsylvania would be the first, so I'm glad that uh, you, you set that straight. But just, to be, just to be clear, uh, this would not be money that would be going into the general fund, correct? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. The Senate's the Senate said for twenty to forty million general fund revenue oh, per okay. year. All right, okay. That was in its fiscal impact. I'd have to look through the house right now. Okay. Well, Lolly, you know one thing I think that uh, we and I do want to talk about the, the THC that uh, uh, Mark brought up, but just to be clear, because I think a lot of people who are unfamiliar with this get images in their mind of how this will be used. Your daughter will not be smoking marijuana, correct? Correct, yes. What form will she be uh, utilizing? <clears throat> um, edibles, you know. Uh, now, ironically, edibles aren't listed as one of the, um, you know, one of the... Um, things that the that a patient can purchase out of a dispensary we're going to have to be making our own edibles at home um, but that's not rocket science we can we can easily do that you know um, so and, you'll be making brownies that uh, a lot of people have used in the past yes. to get high yes or fudge or you know whatever we can be creative with that um, so you know a lot of the children you know get oil sublingually and and a pill. you know yeah, if they can swallow pills. Right, a lot of these right. kids can't swallow pills either. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and and if we're all being honest, you know, there there are some people already experimenting and already trying and already having great success with this in Pennsylvania. You know, um, I think the I think what we want to see here is that no more no more parents, no more no more um, wives are forced to, you know, break the law and engage in illegal activity in order to, you know, help their loved one. But, you know, the bottom line is I think that, you know, we can all agree that when you when you love someone, when you heartbreakingly love someone and you watch them suffer, you are gonna do whatever you need to do to get them the help that they need. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing medical marijuana during this portion of the program. The State House passed legislation last week legalizing uh, mar medical marijuana. It now goes to the Senate, and if the Senate uh, concurs, it will go on to uh, Governor Tom Wolf, who has signaled that uh, he will, would support the uh, the legislation. Joining us is Lolly Bench Myers, whose daughter may benefit from the use of medical marijuana. And Mark Walters, York Daily Record reporters, covered this issue for years. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I did want to clarify some things on the autism uh, diagnosis. Uh, and Lolly, you just pointed out to me during the break that uh, 
Pennsylvania is one of the few, if only one of the only states, that we have a condition list, that this legislation provides a number of conditions that uh, medical marijuana can be used to treat where other states don't have that? Well, you know, a lot of states do have a conditions list. What I wanted to point out is that I believe we're the first state to actually list autism on a conditions list. Um, But many states, you know, do allow autistic patients to legally obtain medical cannabis from their program. The difference is those states don't actually have a conditions list. So, yes, it was reported that Pennsylvania was, you know, the first state to allow autism. That's not that's not entirely true. It's just that we have we are the first state to actually have autism listed on a conditions list, um, which I think is truly something to be proud of. That was um, we're pretty excited about that, to be honest. So, Mark, how this would be dispensed, how uh, patients would be treated uh, is a little bit different than what some other states are doing uh, under normal circumstances for uh, a medication. You go to a doctor, doctor makes a diagnosis, writes a prescription, you go to the pharmacy, and the the pharmacist fills that prescription. That's not how it's going to happen here in Pennsylvania with medical marijuana, is it? Not exactly. No, it it would be um, more of a recommendation from a physician, and from there you would go to what's known as a dispensary, which would be, I mean, brick-and-mortar building. It could be really anywhere. It could be, a, you know, in a city or, or a town. Um, and they would have a very sophisticated uh, tracking system. And it's been discussed at, at, at the, the litany of hearings that, that this issue has had over the years. And it would track in real time. So, you know, a patient would go in with a card known as, a, as an, ad, an, an identification card, and that would be issued from the health department and managed by the Medical Marijuana Advisory Board, which would be basically this version's, as I said earlier, Liquor Control Board, um, just to give people an idea of what that would look like. Um, and so they would go with the card, here I am, my, my doctors recommended this, and then it would be tracked digitally whereby they could look up, you know, when the last time this person came in, and that would prevent people from just hopping around to dispensaries and and picking up as much as they could. They would be allowed to have a caregiver who would also have to apply within this program such that, let's say, you know, for instance, Lolly would be her daughter's caregiver um, or or someone else in her family could, could be as well. So, a very, very sophisticated system that would also track, like, you know, you can only have a certain amount every 30 days and, and very, very uh, stringent to, to prevent from diversion. Doctors also would have to participate in this. I mean, in other words, they'd have to register, correct? Yes, they would have to register with the health department. They would have to take, um, I believe it's a four-hour course, uh, and probably even even more so than that, I, I, there's provisions in the bill for continuing education for physicians, for nurses, um, for physicians assistants. So yeah, you, you wouldn't a doctor wouldn't be able to just say, hey, I'll, I'll I'll sign for this. I mean, it would the doctor would have to be approved within uh, the medical marijuana program that this bill establishes. 
If you're uh, just tuning in, we're talking about the medical marijuana legislation that was approved by the Pennsylvania House of Representatives last week. Our guest, Mark Walters, uh, the York Daily Record reporter, has been covering this issue for a long time. And Lolly Bench Myers, whose daughter may benefit from the use of medical marijuana. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Mark, what are some of those other conditions that uh, are are part of this because you know again very early on this has changed a whole lot as Lolly can probably describe but very early on uh, the seizure disorders got all the attention but then it was also uh, talked about with uh, using for uh, chemotherapy to uh, you know offset some of the the side effects of chemotherapy but there are six or seven different conditions you mentioned some that were added but what are those conditions uh chronic severe pain is one of them um one of the ones i like to explain to people you know around the dinner table when they ask me about this is um wasting syndrome, which is associated with HIV-AIDS. When a patient suffers from HIV-AIDS, after a while, the, their system is attacked to the point where they pretty much waste away, and with that comes a shrinking stomach and a lot of hunger. Um, tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, makes people hungry. So someone with HIV-AIDS would take this and get an appetite, and it's the same way with someone uh, who's on, on chemotherapy, if you've ever known someone, I'm sure many people have, almost everyone has known someone on that, it basically attacks your body and, and destroys it, and you lose an appetite, and with that, you you just kind of wither away, so to speak. And it, it, again, with that, it just makes the, the person taking it hungry. Um, and that, you know, that can alleviate pain, that can help sustain a, a better quality of life, uh, people believe. And um, th- that's, that's the one that I, that I use, use to explain to people that, you know, patients could benefit from this. What are some of the other conditions? Uh, Parkinson's is on there. Uh, multiple sclerosis is on there. Um, I'm not looking at the list right no, that's now. That's fine. We have PTSD as well, um, which we were pretty... Um, pretty thrilled to make sure, you know, to see that that made the cut, the final cut. Um, that was something that um, a, a lot of advocates fought really hard for. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the money will go toward research. And that's why it caught my attention earlier, Mark, when you said that uh, there's no limit on the amount of THC. One of the big holdups, one of the big arguments here in Pennsylvania against this legislation is that the Food and Drug Administration in Washington had not had not finalized their research, had not endorsed it. And so some of the, the, the pushback from Pennsylvania legislators was, well, let's wait for the feds before we decide to go ahead and do this. Well, I think that uh, parents like Lolly and uh, other parents involved in uh, comp- uh, the, her, her group uh, that showed that there was some desperation there, that uh, the, their kids needed to be treated now. Uh, but still, that level of THC, what was the thinking behind that? To be honest with you, I, Scott, I, 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 can't, I can't answer that. I mean, that came out of an amendment, and, and I, as I was watching it um, on my computer at the time, I came up to see the, the final vote on Wednesday, but I was watching the, the live stream, and I 
like I said earlier, I mean, it, it was surprising. I'm, I'm not sure where that came from. I'm pretty sure that turned off a, a few potential yes votes. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I, I know that certain conditions and, and certain disorders, so for instance, the, you know, for a patient seeking the CBD oil, that's little to no THC. Think about you know, the alcohol content in a, in a non-alcoholic beer whereby the people who need it, say, to develop an appetite, they would need very high levels of THC. So I know that, um, I can't speak for them, but I know that some advocates were pushing for it because of, depending on what condition, that limiting it would limit the, the bill's ability to help certain patients. Mm. Uh, does that concern you at all, Molly, as a parent? Concern me? Yeah. Heck no. I'm thrilled. Um, limiting the THC content, that was a completely arbitrary um, cap that was placed in that bill at one point. Um, we have been against that since day one. Why on earth would we want to limit the amount of conditions or limit the amount of people that can benefit from this bill? Um, and and I do want to tell you, too, that while we were at the Capitol last week, um, there was a, a child there having a tonic-clonic seizure. And at, at the event. Well, yes, and, and many, actually. But this one particular child, um, their mother rubbed high THC oil on their gums, and the seizure stopped in minutes. Now, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and that's just one of the ways that a high THC oil um, or you know preparation um, can help patients in Pennsylvania. So we were just ecstatic to see that removed. Um, and, you know, let's be realistic here. Is anybody limiting the psychoactivity in any pharmaceutical drugs? I mean, if I want to get high as a kite, I can go get some oxycodone, you know. So I, I think that's an unfair double standard to place on this program to say that, you know, we don't want anybody to get high on medical cannabis. This isn't about getting high. This is about getting well. And well, the reason I ask that, and I'm probably falling back into the original question I asked you about not smoking, that people picturing this, when they hear about no limits on THC, they're thinking, okay, wait a minute, it's, it's a medication, shouldn't there be limits? But I think you just explained it explained mm -hmm. it pretty well. Sure, sure. I mean, we have, a, we have an opioid epidemic in this in this state so um, I think it's really unfair to to you know place some kind of restriction on something that can truly be used medicinally that people do need high THC contents for a lot of ailments um, and, and it's just not fair to restrict that just because you're afraid somebody might get high um, you know if you're worried about people getting high let's do something about the opioid addiction problem let's take a phone call from Keith in Mechanicsburg Keith you're on the air Hi, thanks Hi. for taking the call. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, I'm an um, 18-year-old uh, veteran. I started having grand mal seizures uh, when I was 28 years old, and it has since pretty much taken my family and my job and everything and put me in constant disability, and I'm really looking forward to the fact of getting a uh, THC type of cannabis oil to use, not because I want to get high at all, just because I just want something that has been shown physically to actually, you know, really take a dent out of the seizure and epilepsy population, which is what I need real bad. So, Keith, what was your diagnosis? Uh, originally, it was... 
uh, extremely high fever, and I was actually in a like a semi barbiturate induced coma at Hershey Medical Center for a month. So, are you confident that uh, this medication would help you? Uh, like uh, the other uh, person you have there, um, it is giving uh, uh, information. Um, I've just done my research, and when you've taken 10 or 15 other uh barbiturate-induced anti-convulsant, or like for me right now, I'm on 350 milligrams of phenobarbital and 4 milligrams of Ativan. And I know what type of damage that's doing to my body. Mm. Well, Keith, good luck, and uh, let's hope that, uh, that you get better, okay? Hey, thank you very much for your call. We only have a minute or so left. Uh, Mark, uh, so we kind of describe where we go from here, but any kind of timeline on the, the Senate, as you said, the Senate's in session today, but uh, is this something that they're going to take up right away? Uh, as far as I know, yes. Senator Fulmer told me yesterday he was up at the Capitol with uh, Senator Jake Corman, who's helping him craft such a piece that, um, as he told me, if they send it back to the House, it's only going to be under an agreed-upon uh, term. So if they can't establish that, then it's, it's likely to, to be concurred upon. Um, timetable, they, Leach's office uh, and Fulmer's office both keep telling me ASAP. So <laughs> not sure exactly when, but they say soon. Mm. Uh, so Lolly, as a part of a group that uh, has been involved in this for a long time, uh, you said that you won't uh, f feel comfortable until after the governor signs it, but uh, w what are you looking for? Um, well, you know, obviously, um, when there's been th this many changes made to a piece of legislation, you know, you definitely have to be very thorough and, um, you know, call in experts. Um, you know, we've even had experts from out of state that have worked on other medical cannabis programs to, you know, come in and, and look at this legislation and make sure that all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. And just, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, before... Before we start the celebration, we want to make sure we truly have something to celebrate about. We don't want to get these patients' hopes up. But, um, you know, I am looking forward to the bill, making it to the governor's desk so that we have those immediate patient protections that we've been looking for so that, um, you know, there's temporary regulations put into place six months from the date the bill is signed into law. These are all things that we are really looking forward to seeing actually, um, you know, rolling out. Um, so the group I'm with, Campaign for Compassion, is just very eager to uh, to see this on the governor's desk and to, um, you know, we're looking forward to seeing what the Department of Health does with this. We're really excited about this. Well, let's hope the best for your family and Anna in particular. And thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Lolly, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Mark Walters, thank you for being with us today as well. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Dickinson College's House Divided Project that is designed to bring a greater understanding of the Civil War era into K-12 and undergraduate classrooms is celebrating its 10th anniversary. Starting this Thursday, Dickinson's House Divided Project is hosting a special conference on the post-Civil War Reconstruction period, a time that still resonates today. Joining us on today's program is Matthew Pinkser, who holds the Brian Pohanka Chair of Civil War History at Dickinson College. He also serves as co-director of Dickinson's House Divided Project. Linda Neeson's a teacher at Crossroads Middle School in the West Shore School District. Todd Mealy is a teacher in the Penn Manor School District in Lancaster County. Welcome to all three of you today. Hi, Scott. Hi. Yeah, thanks morning. for having us. If you have a question or comment about the project, uh, anything else having to do with the Civil War era, Reconstruction period, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Pinkster, let me start with you. Uh, actually, we've talked about House Divided on the air before, but for those who aren't familiar with it, what is the House Divided Project at Dickinson? What we've tried to do in the last 10 years is create... 21st century tools that can bring the 19th century alive, especially for K-12 educators. So it's um, a project built by Dickinson professors and students. Uh, John Osborne, a professor of history, and I started this with our students. And our goal is to get college students building multimedia content that can help teachers uh, engage their kids in the story of the coming of the war, the Civil War, and now the Reconstruction period, which is entering its 150th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. And just before we go any further, I want to say that you have a wonderful website that anyone who wants to learn something about the Civil War era, uh, just the things you described, that can go to the website. What is the website, uh, the address? Well, you can Google House Divided Project, and we'll pop right up, but it's uh, housedivided.dickinson.edu. Okay. And it will give you a gateway. We have actually two dozen different websites. Uh, we have a research engine that has uh, 15,000 public domain images and tens of thousands of records. And then we have a series of classroom sites designed to focus on different topics like the Underground Railroad or Lincoln's Writings and offer a host of multimedia content tools to help you learn more about those things. And the word digital is mentioned mm -hmm. alongside uh, the House Divided Project, but you actually have something special coming up uh, this weekend uh, having to do with the con well, it's in concert with the conference, uh, and that is uh, an actual brick-and-mortar gallery. Right. Describe that, if you would. Well, the irony is we started off on the web, and now we're building a, a physical space. So you went backwards. We went backwards. <laughs> I, I imagine it's going to become the more uh, normal procedure in the future. But what we did is we spent 10 years building interactive content, and now Dickinson is opening up a, uh, a gallery for us on campus. We're calling it a studio. It's like a multimedia production studio. But it, what it does is it offers us a chance to create a gallery experience for the 21st century. So we have images and exhibits and three-dimensional objects that trigger what we call augmented reality. That's a new digital technology that's been around for several years, but it's just now becoming uh, uh, free and portable in the classroom. So we use a tool called Erasma, which allows students to point their devices, tablets or phones, at 
exhibit panels and images in the gallery. And then it triggers video documentaries, multimedia content, links to further research. So it takes a small gallery experience and it gives them a, a portal into a, you know, an infinite variety of resources. And what's best about it for teachers is that it's all portable. So they can download the exhibits from our uh, gallery. They can put them up on their bulletin boards. And then they can use tablets and devices in their own classroom to get the same experience there. So it extends the learning framework. All right. So let me uh, turn to the teachers now. Uh, Lynn and Eason, uh, you teach middle school students. Um, how, do you use, how do you use the House Divided Project? The House Divided Project is a wonderful problem for me because it has so many terrific transcribed documents and images and so many links. It's very student-friendly. So students can get on. And I could pick a topic such as Lincoln's letters, Lincoln's rise to being president, and the path he took. And the students would be able to research this on their own. They might do it through years. They might do it going straight to Lincoln's writings. Um, and then it allows me to have students work in collaboration. They could each choose a different writing of Lincoln's and make an argument or a different image of Lincoln. This is the one I think is most important. There are that's set up by events. I could pick the Dred Scott case if I wanted to and look at how the different newspapers in the country looked at the Dred Scott case at that time period. So there's really a lot of layers within the House Divided Project that I can use to find information for students. You know, what it sounds like to me is that this is how today's students learn. I mean, most of them uh, have uh, mobile phones, uh, are very <laughs> skilled at using their technology, and this seems like the way to keep their attention and to keep them interested. It truly is. So as history teachers, we try to keep history alive for students, and this is truly the way to do it. We do have the documents. We have the Pennsylvania standards, for instance, that want students to be critical thinkers, to use primary evidence from the past, and then we need to allow students to work with each other collaboratively and then also to you know promote their own ideas and thoughts about the topics. Tom Mealy, yeah. you've been on the program before. We've talked about this, but how do your students use it? Well, I think we, we first have to say that um, you know the the rigors of of Pennsylvania Core and, and Common Core um, insist that students are comparing uh, documents and the resources that Matt has provided, like the House Divided Project, uh, enables students to be active learners in their own experience in, in school. Um, uh, you know, we can get on to House Divided Project and we can see things like um, uh, online lectures and, uh, uh, and uh, exhibits and the archives, you know, the search engine that Matt uh, brought up to you a, a couple minutes ago. Uh, students can do the you know bulk of the research by by going on to his website and and finding those those documents and um, you know and he's given us ideas you know uh, to be teachers um, we get on his his website and he has these online lectures well you know what we can do now is we could uh, record our own presentations put them online for the kids to watch at home 
and that gives us more time in, in, in the classroom to do collaborative work, the, the students to do collaborative work and take ownership over what they're learning. You know, Scott, you said one thing that I actually think is, is a mistake, or at least it's a mistaken premise. It's Wait, the, I only made one mistake yeah, today? Yeah, just one. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I have to go professor on you. <laughs> so, look, you, you think, everybody thinks that kids these days are masters of technology, but the truth is they're not. Really? Yeah. They use these things, but they don't know how they're made. They don't know how to maximize their efficiency. The reason why we call our database a research engine instead of a search engine is because research is about making connections. And most students don't think that far ahead. They, they, they use a search engine to get hits, and they get a list of things right. that come up, and they're meaningless, and they're not weighed, and they're not put into context. And so what I think Linda and Todd and every other teacher who uses our project appreciates is that we curate this stuff. We create a context for the information so that it's... Um, more valuable and richer, and it gives students greater trust in the credibility of their sources. One of the key elements of historical learning is to weigh the credibility of sources. We've done that in this enclosed environment and presented it free and given it layers, and that that's what makes it valuable. And, you know, and I, I certainly understand exactly what you're talking about because maybe I just look at it because they are so much more technologically skilled than I am, and mm. uh, so that, that, that's my uh, basis of context. Yeah. But um, let's face it, there are there is so much information online that, as you say, you can see a list, right. but you don't know what is credible and what's not. Yeah. You probably, just about the Civil War era, right. can find opposite explanations about different events. I know I've even seen, uh, you know, things that I know to not be true right. on there talking about something. Well, our challenge as teachers is to show our students how to weigh the information the way they get it, which is online. And that's, that's difficult. It's tricky because it's fast-paced and it's changing. And mm -hmm. so we're all adapting to it. But it's our greatest challenge as educators. I'm curious, uh, Todd and Linda, uh, Linda, you, as I said, to teach uh, middle school students and Todd, high school students. What's the difference in the age group uh, bet between these students? I mean, uh, and what grade do you teach, I by teach the way? I teach eighth grade. Eighth graders, okay. So I have, you know, rising students going to high school, and I think they do appreciate that they know they really need to start to become <clears throat> critical thinkers, and they need to do, as Matt said, and be able to take information and uh, judge for themselves what was happening in the time period, uh, poli politically, and uh, everything that was involved in time period, and they need to start being able to analyze for themselves. What are they most interested in? What do you find that is the most popular part of the project for your students? Uh, human interest stories. They like knowing about people. They know they like knowing how people thought in the time period, and it's easy to find that because there's a section just on people. And even within different topics or major events, how it's uh, laid out on the website, they like knowing what the different people did, the decisions the people were making. Um, there's one section, for instance, just on the election when Lincoln is elected, and this is going to be a big one. I can see I can compare this so easily to the election we're in right now. Absolutely. And they are going to top, be able to see what the candidates were like. Was there a political party falling apart at the time? And knowing how people thought is something they really like. Was there a Donald Trump in 1860? I don't think so. I mean, there were some different candidates, but uh, 
I don't know. Matt, was there uh, a Donald Trump in 1860? They didn't have billionaire real estate developers, <laughs> but people people did call Stephen Douglas a demagogue, yeah. and there was a lot of concern over some of those issues. So, Todd, what about you, high school well, students? I've taught every level of high school, but I currently teach ninth graders. Um, we do a lot with research and, and writing. So uh, when we use House Divided, it's to find the, the sources and, and to how to synthesize and interpret those documents. Um, now, I wouldn't say that's what the students are most interested in, in using a website for. I, I think they've uh, took a li- taken a liking to, to Matt's uh, digital virtual field trips. Um, and he has some ones that, that, dated, that date back on there when he first started the website, I think it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, well, where they like to go? Well, they like to follow uh, Henry Box Brown's road from Virginia up to right. Philadelphia. They, they love that story. I think it's a story of its own. So the slave who mailed himself in a box to freedom. Yeah. Well, of course, he didn't mail himself in a box. Right. There were people who helped mail him, <laughs> right, and right, uh, right. some of them went to Dickinson, and that's why we have this great connection to that story. I, see, now, you just anticipated my next question. Yeah. One of the things that's unique about the House Divided Project is that you use Dickinson as kind of a starting point. Right. Uh, and, you know, I have to bring this up. Uh, two of your most uh, famous alumni, right. James Buchanan and uh, Chief Justice Roger Tawney, the Supreme Court, who uh, made the decision the Dred Scott decision. Okay, I know from talking to a lot of friends who went to Dickinson, who worked for Dickinson, that you have mixed feelings about how much pride you have in the two of them. Well, those two men are certainly significant, but they made some bad decisions. Uh, You know, they thought they were doing the right thing, but obviously they weren't. In retrospect, it's clear to everybody. Um, but, you know, our joke is we're the school that caused the Civil War. You take those two men and, you know, <laughs> well, forget about slavery or states' rights. But those are the two that are most responsible for the conflict in some ways in the late 1850s. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about Dickinson is it was a place that had both pro-Southerners and pro-Northerners. It was like it half was, and half, It was it? mixed. And, you know, uh, the man who helped Henry Brown escape was named James McKim. And he was the William Lloyd Garrison of Pennsylvania. He was uh, the leading abolitionist in the state. And at the Reconstruction Conference that we're hosting this week, we're going to tell another story about him, the kind of human interest story that Linda just mentioned. He helped discover a runaway slave from South Carolina named Prince Rivers. Now, this name is not well known, but this guy embodies the story of Reconstruction. Uh, He escaped from slavery himself fled behind Union lines in 1862. He was a coachman for a plantation master. He stole the marriage carriage. He stole the master's carriage and rode behind Union lines in the uh, Union-occupied Sea Isles of South Carolina. And then um, he was one of the first black members of the uh, Union Army. The first South Carolina volunteers were organized, and he was their color sergeant. And on Emancipation Day, there's an image of him holding the flag, vowing never to let it drop. And he became a hero during the war. And then after the war, he became a politician in Reconstruction, South Carolina. And he became uh, a judge. And then during the period when redemption began, when the whites in South Carolina began to take back control from the Republicans and the carpetbaggers, he was driven out of office. And at the end of Reconstruction, he was forced back into his job as a coachman. Now, he was no longer enslaved, but right there you see the rise and fall of the hopes of emancipation through the story of this one man who was discovered and promoted by the Dickinsonian. Mm. It's fascinating. That's a great story. I'm using it. (laughs) (laughs) We have a phone call here from Tom in Auburn. Tom, you're on the Oh, hi. Hi, guys. 
yeah, I read some time ago that the Pennsylvania Department of Education no longer mandates the teaching of American history in the uh, public school system. Is, is there any truth to that? All right, thank you very much for your call. Uh, wow. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, that is not something that I've heard. Uh, I, you know, with uh, many other school districts and states all around the country, that there is a heavy emphasis placed on math and science testing, and yeah. testing yeah. and right. language. Uh, however, we have not heard anything that there's less emphasis placed. On American history in Pennsylvania. Maybe we can get someone from the Department of Ed to let us know what it says there. Just, just a short, com uh, quick comment on that. Uh, I don't know about that being accurate, but I know the, the Pennsylvania Corps is, you know, focusing on English and math and science. And, and at one point, there was going to be an emphasis on on history, uh, but the state has backpedaled away from testing us uh, in that, and we don't we don't have a date for for or when or if. Uh, there'll be a keystone exam on, on social studies. You know, something that uh, one of you said earlier about bringing history alive, um, Matt, you know, from time to time, we've all heard it growing up. I and mean, there are some of us who just love American history, history overall. But we've heard others say as they're going through uh, high school that, uh, you know, I don't need, need to memorize these dates. I don't need to know these these kind of things. I need the basics, the, the math, the reading, the language, the kind of things. Why is history? I mean, this is kind of a basic question, but why is history important? Well, so for example, on Thursday night at Dickinson, Eric Foner is coming to campus. He was on our program a few weeks ago. He was, he was on your program, and he is addressing the subject at a public lecture at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. What is the significance of Reconstruction in American history? And he is going to argue that the unfinished revolution of Reconstruction still affects us today, and a lot of the tensions over race and the Black Lives Matter movement date back in some ways to Reconstruction rather than the pre-Civil War period. And he's going to try to explain that. You know, in order to understand the challenges that people face today over color, you need to go back to the challenges they underwent after the war. And that was a, a challenge over equality. The end of slavery wasn't so much about equality, but Reconstruction was all about how to make equality work. And it was difficult for them, and it's difficult for us. Let's talk about that. I mean, we only have about 90 seconds left, but what don't most people understand or realize about Reconstruction? I mean, when we talk, the, talk about the Civil War era and studying it, often we talk about battles. Often we talk about, you know, some of the human uh, stories, but we kind of skip over Reconstruction. Oh, yeah, there was this eight-year period and blah, 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 blah. Carpetbaggers came to the South. You're so, giving me 90 seconds for this? I, I know. I know. Well, now I'm giving you a minute 15. So. All right. So thank you. Look, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to learn about Reconstruction, uh, and it's about the powers of Congress and the President uh, over the role of the federal government in trying to get states in line with um, uh, their measures and policies. We are going to focus on all the new scholarship about that at our Saturday teacher workshop. And I will say this in my last 60 seconds, right? <laughs> uh, that's a, a workshop for teachers. But if you go to our website, if you are a listener to Smart Talk and you want to show up, we still have a few spaces left. We'll make room for you and you can register as a Smart Talk participant and you can join us. And you're going to hear from some leading presenters on the latest information about Reconstruction and the, the battle between Congress and the president over how to enforce it. 
website again? So, so HouseDivided.Dickinson.edu. All right. Now we have 30 seconds left. You were, you know, you, you did such a great job. Mm-hmm. And Go ahead. Were you going to say one No, I was just going to say that when you were talking about the history that I think uh, there's a great Faulkner quote about the past isn't right. dead. It's, it's not even past. If kids don't know where where they've been, they won't know where they're going. Well, I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope that, uh, you know, someone listening to this, that more than one person listening today will take advantage of uh, the conference this weekend. Matthew Pinkser holds the Brian Pohanka Chair of Civil War History at Dickinson College, also serves as co-director of Dickinson's House Divided Project. Linda Neeson, a teacher at Crossroads Middle School, and Todd Mealy, a teacher at Penn Manor. Thank all three of you for being with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up tomorrow, our very first Smart Talk road trip from the Lancaster Amtrak station.